Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. The confrontation between Iran and Saudi Arabia is really the governing principle right now in the region. The Iranian influence in Iraq, the Iranian influence in Yemen, its obvious influence in Syria and Lebanon has, you know, kind of put some people on their heels there. Morgan Till, PBS NewsHour's foreign editor, is our guest for the hour. So please stay tuned. This show is made possible by the support of Solomon & Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Solomon & Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence. Recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. Learn more at SolomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure airs on NPR One, Spotify, and on Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at fulldradio. And we have another upcoming show with the University of Richmond's Robin School of Business featuring John Byrne of Poets and Quants, Tuesday, March 16th via Zoom. Join us. Joining me is Morgan Till, PBS NewsHour's foreign editor. It's always a joy to have you on, sir. You have your finger on the pulse of... Everything going on across this this great tiny planet of ours. How are you? Um, well, that pulse is often trying to give me a heart attack. So um, <laughs> after after the last uh, few months, um, but I'm doing well. Thank you, Robin. It's always a pleasure to join you. So let me throw a uh, you know to mix metaphors here a jump ball at you. Uh, we are now approaching the spring of 2021, and there's a New York Times story. I remember reading it, and I pulled it up again today. Uh, April 6, 2018, Los Angeles. He talked about the movie business with Michael Douglas, Morgan Freeman, and Dwayne The Rock Johnson. He discussed space travel with Richard Branson in the California desert and philanthropy with Bill Gates and technology with Jeff Bezos in Seattle. He visited Harvard and MIT, brokered arms deals with President Trump, and sat down with Wall Street financiers. He even met with Oprah Winfrey. For nearly three weeks, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, the 32-year-old heir to the Saudi throne, has crisscrossed the United States on an ambitious choreographed journey through modern American life while under heavy guard because of his many enemies in the Middle East. I got to tell you, fast forward six months later and Jamal Khashoggi, the Saudi dissident and the the largely U.S.-based journalist, was dismembered in Turkey. The subsequent investigations have the Crown Prince's fingerprints all over it. Is it or is it not the most costly hit job in history? Well, I think that remains to be seen. Obviously, for the image of Saudi Arabia mm. and its sure. and its new, uh, relatively new de facto leader. I mean, the crown prince has been in power for about six years um, since, uh, or actually, sorry, about four years since since deposing his uncle, who was then crown prince. As you saw recently with how the Biden administration released a, a unclassified version of, of a report the CIA had aggregated with all of its information, laying, as you said, at his feet, the decision, most of the men involved in the killing were his personal aides or bodyguards. Uh, a quick reaction force uh, was deployed to Istanbul to kill Mr. Hoshokchi in the, in the, in the Saudi consulate there. All of these people would never have done this without his say-so. That much is clear. But what you also saw in the Biden 
statement was, we want to recalibrate the, the relationship and not rupture it, are the words that uh, the Secretary of State used. And, and what that means is they understand the vitality of the U.S.-Saudi relationship, which is a fraught one, I would say, uh, and was much cozier under President Trump and his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, who was on a, uh, you know, a texting string relationship with uh, Mohammed bin Salman. It remains to be seen, I think, how this relationship will evolve now that this White House is trying to institute some structure in the relationship whereby the president will not speak directly to MBS because he's not the king. That will be left largely to the Secretary of Defense, who will count as his opposite number, the Defense Minister of Saudi Arabia, who also happens to be Mohammed bin Salman. So I think it's a <laughs> after the um, after a, a easy ride, I would say, for four years with uh, with great amounts of weapon sales to the Saudis, major backing of the Saudi enterprise, deadly enterprise in Yemen, which roars on into its seventh year. Um, sure. I think you know that was part and parcel of the Biden team's response was to pull out people who are helping target sites held by Houthi rebels in Yemen. There are various. But let's hold time out, time out, Morgan. Let's live in the past a little bit. Okay. You're assuming some amount of rationality on the Saudi prince. I mean, after all, this picture of him in the Times, he's strolling through the Googleplex with, uh, you know, Sergey Brin. Right. Uh, he's dressed like in kind of Silicon Valley chic with the blazer and jeans, and he's here making investments a lot about. Um, egalitarian strides for women and movie theaters and driving and uh, diversifying the economy away from the oil curse and blessing. Why indulge in killing someone like this? Like, what did you think would happen if you were somewhat rational? <laughs> um, well, that's that's um, that's presuming that I'm a rational actor. Um, you know, it's the kind of thing that you do when you think you can get away with it. Is is the thinking that leads to that. Um, they had had a pretty longstanding persecution of dissidents, journalists, um, mm. practice uh, in standing. We actually on the NewsHour did a piece about sons and and two sons of of um, dissidents and one dissident himself in this country who were allegedly tailed by Saudi intelligence, run out of the Saudi embassy in Washington. Um, one of them was a son of a prominent Shia cleric in the in the eastern part of Saudi Arabia, where there, there's a predominance of, of Shiite Muslims. But it, going back to my main point is if you don't think there are going to be consequences for your actions, you do this kind of thing. It's also, a, frankly, bespeaks a, an insecurity about criticism of, of your government, even as he was on this very high profile PR campaign. Um, he got a, a, a relatively softball profile in 60 Minutes. He did, you know, as you say, all of these amazing visits across Silicon Valley, Washington. Remember the the tableau of the president in the Oval Office holding up these of pictures the, of weapon systems yeah. that the UN, United States was selling them. But you know, I think I I can't say whether the the last um, two and a half years have chastened him at all. I think their reaction to the Biden moves was to denounce them essentially. And you'll note very prominently the questions for the Biden White House were, okay, if you're going to sanction seventy two people involved in this, why isn't seventy three named MBS? 
Yeah, it's all it's all a little Kubrick esque to me that you know the buck stops with him, and it's kind of to even intimate that I am shocked, shocked that this happened under my watch, and we're gonna take care of everybody who was involved when everybody kind of realizes that something on this scale could not have happened without him suborning it or being intimately involved with it. I mean, am I getting this wrong? Am I no? Am I, I a little I, too naive with foreign affairs? No, I don't. I don't think you are. There's there's absolutely no chance. Um, uh, there's a you know there's not a of evidence that any of these people would have undertaken this grisly mission without his approval. It's just not how things are done. I remember nobody was much talking about his honeymoon in office when he took a bunch of distant relatives and friends and businessmen captive in the luxury hotel in Riyadh and didn't let them go for a couple of months. I mean, even that doesn't strike the air of, of Western Europe and and kind of the, the G7 to do something. That's why I'm I'm still curious as to why you think that going all out and dismembering and disappearing this person who was part of the U.S. press corps, you could have gotten away with that after this period of kind of euphoric embrace of Saudi-U.S. rapprochement relations. Well, I think I think part of it was, and you saw this response from the upper echelons of the Trump administration, was uh, the president never acknowledged it, basically glossed over it uh, at the time. And the Secretary of State was very direct in saying, we need the Saudis. And you know the leaks, as they were about responsibility were coming from the intelligence community and probably from Capitol Hill. So I think there was the feeling at the time, you know, a year and a half into Donald Trump's presidency after, as we've mentioned several times, that that incredible visit earlier in the year, that he could get away with it because there weren't going to be penalties coming at them from Washington. And now you can look at what the Biden people have done and he still hasn't you know, there hasn't been a, a real price exacted on him for this. Now, obviously, mm. people have been subject to sanctions and travel bans and such uh, and visa bans to come to the United States, but none of them reportedly is Mohammed bin Salman. And doing that would be extraordinary for a, a tacit ally. So that is the strange position. And here, maybe I'm channeling a little bit too much I, Claudius, and uh, Sopranos and, uh, you know, reading up on covert operations by the CIA and and the UK and others in the 1950s and 60s. But is there any way to foment uh, regime change in Saudi Arabia? Or has the prince successfully kind of cleared out all practical opposition to him? I, I'm wary of that word because it implies external forces. Um, he has. But let's say someone internally in Saudi Arabia, no, he's could a, a general or. He was very, you know, no, he, the short answer is no. Um, the um, part of that campaign against dissidents, journalists, women that rights activists, one prominent one was just released a few weeks ago who had been jailed for over two years. One of the women who was one of the principal activists in the women driving movement there. You know, there's there's just not any kind of organized power structure that he hasn't got his fingers into. The defense ministry is controlled by him. Um, he is the supreme power in the country. His father is very old um, and is rumored to be in ill health. So there is no way to challenge him. And he is 35 years old. He will likely be in power there, notwithstanding an accident or an early death of some kind for the next 45 or 50 years. Morgan, so much has changed uh, with respect to the United States and and Saudi's trade balance of power since kind of the fracking revolution in the United right. States. Let's say the inception of that was around 2008 and 2009. From us going uh, to being terrified by $140 barrel crude and the Saudis being the biggest player in OPEC to kind of 
the Saudis being terrified by all of the uh, oil and natural gas and liquids that our our oil patch in the U.S. can throw off. Who has who has much more leverage right now economically? I mean, they buy military equipment off of us, right. which is something that Donald Trump kind of brandished very openly in his press conference. He's like, I'm taking him at his word. They buy a lot of things off of us. But who has the economic leverage in something like this? Well, you know, as as you mentioned, all of those different sectors of the American energy landscape, you know, under President Obama, we became the world's largest net exporter of fossil fuels. And that is, you know, natural gas and oil and, and everything we all know about. The Saudis, and it's it's the longstanding debate, are are we and they running out of oil? It's the, you know, what is zero day for them? And they have not um you know, the, the prince has talked about his what he calls his Vision 2030 plan, which is a way to institute renewables in the kingdom that starts to wean them off of their main and only export. Hmm. So it's, I, you know, I'm, I, it's not really for me to gauge leverage, but from this standpoint with the United States in the, in the position it is energy-wise, and the Saudis diminished um, somewhat. It would seem the leverage is, is on one side, but there are many, many more calculi involved in that relationship than just the energy partnership. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Morgan Till. He is the foreign editor for the PBS NewsHour. Covered so many things across the planet. I mean, in the volatile Trump years and during the, the, you know, the Biden first hundred days. And we were just talking about the Saudi recalibration. I love the, uh, the euphemism. In that, but this is all intimately linked to what's going on in Iran. Uh, one of the other things that he really had going for him, MBS, in that kind of ascendancy and this new this new dawn for Saudi U.S. Saudi world relations was this new axis of kind of Israel, Saudi, and the United States against Iran, a shared common enemy in the Middle East. Trump backed out of trade rapprochement with Iran. Uh, the screws were really on 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 Tehran. You had this proxy war in Yemen with the Houthi rebels. What? How does how does Iran play into this right now? And considering who you just had on uh, NewsHour discussing the prospect for uh, a resumed kind of nuclear disarmament negotiation with Iran, I know that's an earful, but but this is kind of everything that's moving around with the new president. Well, and that's specifically go go back to um, the beginning of the Trump administration when the president said he wanted to pull out of the Iran deal, reimpose sanctions, because he thought it was, quote, the worst deal in the history of the world or something like that. Um, the Saudis were key to that. The Saudis were in incredibly angry when President Obama struck that deal. They see, Ob they see Iran as their main nemesis in the region. Um, the Iranian expeditionary efforts, military, covert terrorist related in the region are well known. Part and parcel of supporting the war originally by President Obama in Yemen was mm -hmm. to, you know, try to placate some of that anger um, and help them try to rout the the Houthi rebels there. But the confrontation between Iran and Saudi Arabia is really the governing principle right now in the region. You know, it it the Iranian influence in Iraq, the Iranian influence in Yemen, its obvious influence in Syria and Lebanon has, you know, kind of put some people on their heels there. And they, you know, that was part of the uh, you know the the thinking I believe from the Trump administration besides the ad hominem denunciations of President Obama by President Trump, there was some underlying theory about how to how to put the screws, as you said, to the Iranians. And that was by pulling out of the deal, reimposing sanctions, crushing their oil industry, which had been revived after the deal, notwithstanding, you know, their lack of ability to produce 
from previous sanctions, but they were up to several million barrels of oil a day and the money was flowing in and, mm. and the sanctions mm. imposed by the Trump administration got that down under a million. They, they're at break even level at something like 800,000 barrels a day production. Yeah. And there was runaway, runaway inflation and bizarre things happening with people jobbing and, you know, doctors becoming cabbies at night and people hoarding used cars. And you thought that the economy was on the brink of collapse. Yes. Uh, I mean, the economic conditions have been atrocious there. Um, You know, not to mention during the pandemic when, you know, there were some exceptions for humanitarian aid, but people were scrounging for, for PPP and medicines to treat a really significant outbreak in Iran that's killed tens of thousands of people. To your other point about the deal, we did have uh, an interview on Tuesday with um, our very good Tehran correspondent Reza Seya, who got a very rare interview with the head of Iran's nuclear program, a scientist who actually got his doctorate at MIT uh, in the 70s named Ali Akbar Salehi, who very rarely does interviews. And he was in his very sort of um, methodical, quiet, somewhat quiet way, you know, demanding the United States re-enter the Iran deal first before there's any negotiation about further steps. And that's just a non-starter for the Biden administration because some of the some of the complaints about the original deal about um, Iranian activities in the region and their missile program were not included. And they have made hints as the, the Trump people always said, we won't do anything until you include these two other facets of the deal. Um, or two other facets of your activity into the deal. So yeah, on, I want you to unpack that a little bit because the Obama administration, it was thought, was kind of laser focused on enrichment right. and the steps necessary to becoming a nuclear arms power uh, hegemony in the region. Uh, there are others on the outside that said, no, you should cast a wider net that includes misbehavior and provocation in places like Syria, in Lebanon, in the occupied territories, Saudi and Israel and other players across the Middle East. And uh, Europe seemed to echo that for a bit, but the the Biden Obama people kind of took more of a pure listen. Don't don't have mission creep in this. Focus right now on the task at hand, which is which is uh, throttling this nuclear weapons campaign and buying ourselves as much time as possible. Yeah, and uh, you know you've often heard the um, the the term breakout time. Um, mm. The famous United Nations speech when the deal was being negotiated or right after it was, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel, stood on the lectern and the main dais at the UN with this cartoon of a bomb yeah. uh, showing that what how close they were. Now, the Obama people said that the deal had extended that to about a year. What the head of Iran's energy, uh, atomic energy organization told us this week was they have about 2,500 kilograms of enriched uranium, which is about 10 times more than the deal allowed, I believe. And you know they are just enriching uranium. They've, they've notified the International Atomic Energy Agency that they're going to enrich to 20% purity. Now, when it comes to enriching uranium, going from the allowed I think it was just under 3% to 20% is quite a, a jump. It's not that far a jump to refine it from 20% to bomb grade material, uh, at least what I've been told by by scientists who study this, that it's not that big a leap to go from that level of refinement to something that is much more readily usable in a bomb. And they're just keeping on producing it. And he, Mr. Salihi said, you know, if you go back into the deal, all that stuff goes away. We'll either sell it. We'll, you know, the Russians took a ton of it after the deal was signed. So the Biden White House is in something of a of a predicament as to how they they push the Iranians back to the table if they can. 
Now, we're looking back at kind of Iran as being such a beneficiary of the various U.S. campaigns of the past 20 years, let's say since 9-11, with the Taliban and al-Qaeda being taken out in Afghanistan, they get uh, a kind of a nemesis on their borders out. And Iraq becomes, after the United States invasion, a a sphere of influence of Tehran. And indeed, they now have uh, Syria as a satellite. So is this what changed the entire balance of power that got Saudi and some of the other Arab Gulf nations unified against Iran for the first time maybe in three decades? It's certainly a big part of it. Um, you know, the, the, as you rightly mentioned, the, the Sunni Taliban were, were arch nemeses of, of Shiite, Shiite of Iran. Shia of course, Iran yeah. um, though there was some more covert dealings with Al-Qaeda. Um, you'll recall a top Al-Qaeda operative was killed likely by the United States or Israel um, mm. last summer in Iran. They had a program where they, where they would let these guys live there if they were under monitoring, and so they just wouldn't do anything to themselves. <laughs> At least that's what it looks like. Um, and you're right. The war in Syria, which the Obama White House was loath to get involved in, um, you recall the famous red line speech red in, line. This, in yeah. August of 2013 from the president, while the negotiations with Iran at that point, I believe, secret led by the man who will soon be the CIA director, William Burns, who was then Deputy Secretary of State. The president seemed very reticent to do anything that would rankle the Iranians to pull out of that operation and has come in for some very heavy criticism for his policy in Syria, which obviously it's not his fault 500,000 people are dead and 13 million displaced. Um, but there was a call for the United States to try to intervene at a, at a point earlier in the war where, where the, the horror was not what it is now, where you have a essentially a failed state with a large portion of it controlled by Syrian Kurds, a little redoubt in the northwest controlled by rebels and, and uh, Islamist militants, and then Bashar al-Assad overseeing a, a destroyed country from Damascus. So the Iranians were very helpful in propping him up, as was Hezbollah, which is an Iranian, largely an Iranian creation in Lebanon, which, you know, is the strongest military force in that country and was also instrumental in 2012 and 2013, propping up Assad as the war looked like it was going badly for Assad and his regime. And they really, they and the Iranians and then later the Russians in 2015 really turned the tide of the war for Assad. Now the question is, what happens now? They're still killing and dying every day. There's a massive COVID-19 outbreak. The Kurds who were, some say, abandoned by the president in a famous tweet uh, right before Christmas of 2018 uh, that led to the, the resignation of then Secretary of Defense James Mattis, have their own war going on with the Turks, essentially. So there's a witch's brew of actors in Syria, one of them being Iran, that has really made the situation a Gordian knot that is almost impossible to untie. Full disclosure, stay with us. This episode podcasts to Apple at linkfulldradio.com, NPR One, and Spotify. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are joined by Morgan Till, PBS NewsHour's foreign editor. We are discussing Iran and the broader Middle East in our broader conversation about foreign affairs coverage, you know, in the midst of the Biden first hundred days. What of Iran? You know, I'm I'm Iranian and I've always been led to believe that my ancestors were always, you know, that the people of the bazaars were very open to grand bargains. You can't make me a deal that I I won't refuse ultimately. I would love to go back and forth with you. Iran, this regime, if it believes in self-preservation 40 years after the revolution, 
Does it have to expand? Does it have to be mischievous and expansionist necessarily, Morgan? Can it just take the money and and buy itself security for several decades hence? Well, that's that's the argument that people who say you've got to fold in the ballistic missile program and its uh, expeditionary uh, military adventurism in the region have to be part of this because you know they are obviously there is a an evangelical aspect to this uh, of you know protecting Shia in the region and propagating uh, Shia Islam. Um, you'll recall when Hezbollah initially went into Syria. They went in reportedly to protect the shrine of Sayyidina Zainab, who is the sister of the Prophet Muhammad, which is outside Damascus. And they went in allegedly to do that, and of course, obviously spread throughout the country as hand in glove mm-hmm. with 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 Syrian forces. But you know that is you know getting back to the original point I was making, it is the kind of you know I can't speak to Iranian motivations. Uh, I would ask you, <laughs> you would know far better being a Persian speaker. You know, it's I can't speak to their motivations. A lot of countries um, have that kind of motivation. Uh, the United States uh, is often accused of that, even though the United States likes to say that the, they're trying to export values and democracy. Um, the Iranians are will make a counter argument as to what they're doing to fight back against the United States actions, uh, largely in the Middle East. So, you know, whether these these negotiations can be resumed and those two different elements folded in there. You know, the Iran deal clearly didn't diminish Iranian uh, missile development. It clearly didn't diminish their desire to support Bashar al-Assad. Mm. Um, it clearly, you know, there were routine missile strikes largely by the Israelis against Hezbollah sites along what they call the Baghdad to Beirut Road, Baghdad to Damascus, that goes that they were carrying weapons and missiles. And the, the Israelis have been conducted hundreds of strikes against Iranian and Hezbollah elements in Syria to prevent the rearming of Hezbollah since they were bled so severely by the war um, in Syria protecting Assad. So whether those elements can be negotiated, I can't say. I mean, they they were, you know, Reza Saya asked Mr. Salahi last night, he's, you know, the the, fam- the, prim- the supreme leader in Iran has famously issued a fatwa religious decree against a nuclear bomb. Now, whether that's worth the paper it's written on, many people will say it's not. But Reza asked him, so if a nuclear weapon is haram, forbidden, why aren't long-range missiles haram? And he kind of stopped short and he said, well, with missiles, you're trying to just hit what you want to hit. You're trying to hit a point. But with a nuclear bomb, and then he turned the tables on the United States and said, well, you, the United States killed 200,000 people in Hiroshima and Nagasaki Hiroshima, in, the, right. in, in, in the blink of an eye. It's kind of dodging the question. Um, and you know, the obvious import of their missile program would be if they can miniaturize a device and put it on a warhead and fire that, then they're in the nuclear club with about nine other countries. And that's the great fear that drove, I believe, President Obama to, uh, as he said, was they can't be allowed to have a nuclear weapon. That was the motivating factor there. The other things may have seemed at the time a bridge too far to get them to the table to try to, to, try to squash or at least um, hold back their program. But we'll see in the upcoming weeks and months whether that negotiation can be can be tripartite with both with all three things uh, included in a largely renegotiated deal. Should it come to that, Morgan Till, uh, Bibi Netanyahu, the longest serving uh, ruler of of modern day Israel. I don't know how many years it's been. I just don't remember the last time Labor was in charge 
uh, of the government there. But uh, is he hanging by a string? He seems to have survived so many near-death experiences, indictment, uh, uh, you know, uh, flash elections and and reelections and power sharing arrangements, and on top of that, the fact that he had notoriously bad relations with Barack Obama and once embarrassed then President Joe Biden uh, as he was returning from a trip to Israel, has he diminished his own clout so much that this poses a threat to Israel's interests? It's hard to say. He is obviously vehemently against the deal, was, came to the United States at the invitation of then Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan, in early 2015 to make a speech denouncing the deal, which was a remarkable breach of diplomatic protocol uh, and Mm -hmm. enraged the Biden White House. He has made it very clear that they would act against a nuclear program in Iran unilaterally if need be. Um, He found a very welcoming voice in President Trump. They were attached at the hip, um, essentially. The president gave him basically everything he wanted, not only the the abrogation of the deal, but then recognition of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, um, recognizing the annexation of Golan, which is internationally um, recognized as, as occupied Syrian territory, really upending relations in many ways between the Palestinians and Israelis, despite um, the, the peace plans that were issued that greatly favored the Israelis. He's also gone on with settlement building in the West Bank, settlement expansion. Um, and Morgan, I have yeah, I've not seen this outrage that people would have told you in prior administrations that the Arab street, not that it is at all a monolith, especially in the wake of the Arab Spring and the various different scenarios that happened across uh, national capitals, it did not erupt in, in howls of, of you know fury when this happened, both with Golan and, and Jerusalem being named the capital, you know, the United States moving its embassy to Jerusalem. Well, part of that, I think, at least from my view, is you know you saw a, a rapid series of normalization accords, what the what the Trump White House called the Abraham Accords, hmm. between places like the United Arab Emirates. There are now diplomatic relations between. Okay, the United Arab Emirates. You know, the Yankees and the Lakers never had a beef, so <laughs> I don't understand. You know, it, it's almost like a diversion. Sudan and others. What were these kind of? Uh, trial balloons to see how Saudi might someday potentially be ready to to engage directly with Israel because it right. was it was said that it was under the the father's dead body that this would happen. Right. And you know, I think this all gets back to the Iran question. The Emiratis are, you know, a small but quite mighty military. They were the real force behind MBS, their special forces and aircraft in Yemen. They pulled out of the war last year because their crown prince Mohammed bin Zayed MBZ, who's next door to MBS, uh, is, a, is many believe a much cagier actor, much more practical in how he manages his very small emirate that is very wealthy. But there is the thinking that we may be better off aligning with Israel and making our common enemy Iran than we are trying to support the Palestinian project, which has been, as you rightly say, you know, the thing that has been first and foremost among many Arab regimes over the last half centuries since the Palestinian path to try to declare statehood and try to carve out their own homeland has been active. So there is, again, you get down to the, the aspect of Iran being a prime focus of many of these regimes and, you know, the enemy of, the, of my enemy is my friend thinking and you get these um, peace deals, which on their face are, you know, pretty remarkable. Morgan, let's move to Myanmar and the coup there. There was a lot of uh, enthusiasm for 
uh, kind of a, a spring in Myanmar if you go back to 2013 and the military kind of acceding some control and a popular person who ultimately won the Nobel Prize ascending, even though she lost a lot of face with subsequent revelations about the, the massacre of Rohingyas. It was still shocking to see with Joe Biden elected that the military would so clearly assert itself in the former Burma and, and get back to old habits. Yeah. I mean, what you had was a real diplomatic success of the Obama administration, the reopening of Myanmar, which was driven by then Senator James Webb, a former Navy secretary, Vietnam veteran, longtime focus in Southeast Asia. And, you know, in 2012, you had, um, or 2011, I believe you had Hillary Clinton going there, the military saying it would reduce its role. President Obama stopped there, I want to say in 2012. They saw that the country was opening, sanctions were starting to be lifted, there was an elected government. And then came the really vile treatment of the Rohingya in, a, in Rakhine State, which borders Bangladesh, forcing a million of them into Bangladesh, into camps. This is a Muslim minority within Bangladesh, which is a predominantly Buddhist country. Um, you saw sanctions levied on that score. Aung San Suu Kyi, who had spent decades in prison, won the Nobel Prize or in home arrest, really, as a, as a student uprising leader 45 years ago or so. She was seen as defending it in some ways. Now, there was subsequent reporting that she wasn't really obviously controlling this. It was a military campaign. And what happened earlier this year was, like many countries where the military is very powerful, whether it's Egypt or, or other countries where something similar has happened, the military saw its business interests starting to diminish. And the head of the military, who was soon to be aged out of the job, I believe, saw his holdings in danger. So that's was one of the proximate reasons for the coup that's happened. And now, as we see, as we have sadly seen in other places, street protests and nonviolent action are getting more violent by the day with police and now the military shooting people in the streets of Yangon and other cities in the country. The situation is obviously incredibly unstable. There were sanctions levied by the Biden administration against military leaders um, because of the coup. Designation of a coup is also an American term of art where foreign aid and other things are, are cut off. It's a very unstable situation. you know. And you still have the issue of the Rohingya out there. We have done tons of reporting on this over the years. A, a good friend of mine and colleague, Tanya Rashid, who's Bengali herself, has been in Bangladesh and done some stunning work about the depravity in which, and the privation in which so many of these, um, these just terrified, destitute refugees have flooded in there. But back to Myanmar, it's, it's another one of these, do the instruments of, of soft non-military power actually work to change the um, calculus for regimes that are bent on their rule? Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to Morgan Till, foreign editor at PBS NewsHour. He's a frequent guest on the show, and I love having him on because he, he could be on the hot seat. You could bring up anything in the country. You can bring up the, the king of Thailand being caught walking around in a skimpy outfit in a German mall, and he'll know what to talk about. But I'm not going to go there quite yet. I do want to go to China. And on a sober note, when you talk about privation and, and shocking revelations this week, and, and frankly, we've, we've known this for a while, but there was a report that came out from an independent group of more than 50 global experts in international law genocide in China. Uh, we see that up to 2 million Uyghurs and other Muslim minorities are believed to have been placed in a sprawling network of detention centers across the region, according to the U.S. State Department, where former detainees allege they were subjected to indoctrination sexually abused, and even forcibly sterilized. China denies allegations of human rights abuses, saying the centers are necessary to prevent religious extremism and 
terrorism. Meanwhile, on the other side of this ledger is we're coming off of a period of back and forth trade wars with China and kind of bloodying one another's noses and sanctions back and forth. How do you even have an economic or geostrategic conversation with a counterpart in Beijing and at the same time ignore something that's borderline genocidal if you are the Biden administration? Well, the first forays into that will start next week. Um, the Secretary of Defense and Secretary of State will be going to South Korea and Japan. And then next Friday, the Secretary of State and the National Security Advisor will meet with their counterparts, their Chinese counterparts in Alaska, which is kind of the midway point between Beijing and, and Washington. It's Yong Jiuqur and Wang Yi, who's the foreign minister, meeting with Antony Blinken and, and Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor. And that is, you know, this is, they have announced Tony Blinken in a, in a speech recently that China is the main focus of competition in the, in the oncoming years. The relationship was a, you know, if you heard President Trump speak, he and Xi Jinping were on very good terms and he considered him a friend, but they were both trying to beat the tar out of each other, largely through trade. That trade war reported well-known with deleterious effects on both countries going into the pandemic. An interim trade deal was struck, a, a phase one trade deal, which um, reduced some of the tariffs and there was some renegotiation. And we did a, at NewsHour, did a 10-part series in the fall of 2019 on China and a subsequent documentary for PBS last summer where we looked at all of this. We looked at you know the trade war. We looked at the intellectual property theft and industrial espionage that the Chinese conduct uh, all over the world, but in particular here. We looked at um, the technology they're developing to create a real surveillance and big brother society where people get so-called social credit for doing good things that are captured on camera if you jaywalk you get uh, you get a demerit but if you help someone up you get a you get, you get a green point or something like that and it's all kept on an app their data mining and data sets on their own people and in within the technology that they purvey around the world led the Trump administration to essentially destroy a Chinese company called ZTE through banning its technology and has gone a long way to handicap Huawei, which is a ubiquitous name of course. Um, in technology. But is there just no bandwidth in these enormously kind of heavy lifts to take on the issue at hand with the, the weaker minority, which obviously it's very hard to get reliable information but that, that comes out, but that, that does come out uniformly shocks and horrifies. Me. Yes. I mean, that report you referenced from the New Lines Institute, which is created by, um, uh, runs a magazine also with several frequent guests on the news hour. Um, was a was a the most declaratory report I think you've seen to date on what both the Trump administration first labeled genocide um, and what the Biden administration has backed up that designation, uh, which enrages the Chinese. As you said, they say these are these are re-education centers, which is a really loaded word, as we all know. Mm, of um, and the the impetus seems to be a complete desire to eradicate Islam from China. Xinjiang, uh, the the Uyghurs are a Turkic people. You know, a lot of them fled to Istanbul, where we met a lot of them for our series. They tell horrendous, heartbreaking, awful stories of mothers and fathers, sisters and daughters going into these camps and either never coming out or coming out essentially brainwashed by Han Chinese culture and tradition. You've probably seen the state-produced video of students people all dancing, yeah. people dancing dressed in Han Chinese. Um, 
costumes all chanting in a room at but the eyes the eyes give it away right the way the cameras are looked at and that's what is so haunting and i wonder especially when you you think about hong kong which the vice is really you know everything is tightened on hong kong so much in the past two years and the the conventions and agreements of the 1997 handover effectively china's really in control of hong kong uh forget about decades hence and taiwan uh, all sorts of bluster towards taiwan what can be done to reign in China. I mean, this is 20 years into China ceding to the World Trade Organization. I don't believe it ever had an economic depression or deep recession, even after being nominally ground zero of, of the kind of the Wuhan, you know, COVID breakout. Uh, it immediately recovered from that. It had a gangbusters year for exports right. in 2020. You must step back and wonder what, if anything, can stop or throttle China's designs and its behavior. It's it's the challenge that the Trump administration faced, in which the Biden administration rightly focuses on. It is a it's a hell of a thing, as as Tony Blinken I think said in his speech recently. He said, "We when we are able to collaborate, when we we will, when we're in competition, we'll compete, and when we are adversaries, we will be adversaries." The Chinese expansionism, both economic and militarily, in the region and the world, has been remarkable. You will recall their Belt and Road Initiative which was a project of hundreds of billions of dollars of loans and tunnel building and undercutting local firms to basically in usurious deals that would give them rights to basically repossess things they had built had, if the smaller country, be it Sri Lanka, be it Indonesia, um, places as far, far flung as Ethiopia, as Ecuador. Yeah, it was a, it was a pawn shop type kind of, you know, shark relationship. Yeah, it was a loan. It was essentially a loan shark operation um, on a global scale meant to update transportation byways and railroads and shipping ports and stuff that would be largely Chinese, if not outright owned, largely Chinese influenced. That's part and parcel of their expeditionary capitalism. And when you ask, how do you leverage them? Well, Xi Jinping, like no leader really since Mao, has consolidated power very quickly in a way that sees seems to to have him be the primary leader of the country going forward. He's in his late 60s. I think he's 66. Their leaders tend to tend to last. I mean, remember Mao died in his 70s, I believe, and Deng Xiaoping mm-hmm. in his 80s, who, was, who tried to undo a lot of what Mao did. But this is a 21st century version of, of the Chinese totalitarianism in some ways that you saw with Mao. The surveillance state buildup, the Military adventurism, not really military adventurism, but you know, it's actions in Hong Kong which have just crushed the place in the last two years. It's now a subsidiary of Beijing, hmm. and the threatening of Taiwan, which President Trump was was noted to say in an, in an off the record quote I've read recently: "Why the f would we try to get, defend them if it's a jump over a stream for China and it would they're halfway across the world? Why would we try to defend them?" Hmm. You know that is a a clarion call on Capitol Hill, a bar, bipartisan one to protect Taiwanese democracy. There have been arms sales to them throughout the decades to the Taiwanese to try to um, bolster their defenses against China. But the re, the the questions are: if the Chinese move on Taiwan, what will the United States do? Do you want to start a great superpower nuclear armed power war? What are the options? These are all the things that. People in the Biden White House have to weigh in calculations as they look forward to dealing with the Chinese. 
You know, Morgan, what's frustrating about having you on is that the time really flies and we <laughs> never have enough time. I mean, in this case, South America got short shrifted. Western Europe, we didn't talk about the royals. We didn't spend nearly enough time on Yemen. But I'd like to save the final five minutes or so to talk about uh, vaccine equity mm-hmm. and uh, the distribution of the vaccine and suddenly this this campaign to save humanity that unites enemies and, and allies alike across the planet. Talk to me. Well, what you've seen is that 10 countries have bought up most of the vaccine supply. You also see the United Kingdom, which developed one of the vaccines, is well on its way in its vaccine campaign. I think about 30% of the country has gotten their first shot. The United States was lagging behind, but is doing better now. Um, State by state, it varies. The Russians developed their own vaccine. We never knew how bad the outbreak was there because they, like the Chinese, don't really report honest numbers. But I did see a statistic recently that 2020, there were 250,000 excess deaths in Russia compared to the year before. The Chinese, obviously, where this outbreak began, kept it under wraps very tightly to the scorn of the world. You know, the way they handled the revelations of what was going on in Wuhan and the way the WHO handled trying to report out what happened. This week will mark the one-year declaration of of a global pandemic by the WHO. And the Chinese, as you said before, have gotten their economy back on track very quickly because in a totalitarian state, you can shut the whole thing down. You know, there are vast swaths of the country, Wuhan to begin with, but other cities, you know, massive cities. You know, it's not like they're shutting down a town. Wuhan is a city of 11 million people um, or thereabouts. It's a massive place. And they're able to enforce this and put such a tight constriction on information flow by shutting down the internet or monitoring the internet or erasing things from people's phones, even when, when they mention a certain word. That we're in a space now where the next challenge is is what a lot of people are calling vaccine diplomacy. Who will be the winner in a diplomatic battle between the Chinese, the West, and the U.S., and the Russians over who can distribute the best vaccine that will save the most people? And the Chinese have distributed hundreds of millions of doses of what they're calling Sinovax. As you see the United States try to ramp up its production here uh, through the Defense Production Act, but also it's it's buying up. The president announced this past week that the United States would be buying 100 million doses of the one-shot Johnson & Johnson vaccine. How the perception battle comes out of this is what some people in the administration are telling us is the next real fight on our hands. You know, and you have finally a, a president in the White House who has always kind of fancied himself both as vice president and in his many decades as a U.S. senator. He was a he was a greenhorn in the early to mid seventies, uh, you know, uh, ascending to the Senate. Uh, he's a foreign policy wonk and a foreign policy guru. He loves to roll up his sleeves and and do this. And we haven't had someone like that in office for a while, kind of purely, maybe since Bush Senior. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, Joe Biden was Senate Foreign Relations Chair for a long time. There are many people who who have um, questioned his judgment with his support for the Iraq War, but he is no doubt steeped in it. Uh, and he, uh, unlike President Trump, President Obama fancied himself a bit of that, but he had none of the experience that Joe Biden did or George H. W. Bush did. But you know, he will. He sees a lot of these things, and 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 it's a as statements from both the National Security Advisor and the Secretary of State have made it clear that a lot of the, I think, more confrontational elements, the language used by the Trump administration about China may go away, but some underlying priorities will stay the same. You know, the trade war is not going anywhere. They're, they're not unwinding that just yet. It's only been, you know, 
uh, just over just under two months since they took office. Um, their designation of the Uyghur genocide is a big deal. Trying to figure out a more stable path forward with the Chinese is, you know, not only just the challenge of this administration, it's going to be the challenge of the of the coming century for the United States. Gosh, and we did not even mention North Korea and probably the paucity of, of back and forth love letters. At this point, Vladimir Putin hardly mentioned Venezuela, Canada, uh, Puerto Rican statehood. There's so much to discuss, which is why you are such a great guest. Uh, please, please, Morgan Till, PBS NewsHour foreign editor, come back on this show. I will. Great to speak with you again, Robin. Look forward to it. Thank you. You bet. Full disclosure, this show was produced and edited by Claire Morgan at Notterly. Full disclosure podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. A shout out to our radio listeners in North Carolina, Northern Virginia, and Southern California. Please get in touch to have our show on your air. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Back with you next week. Thank you.